Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian Gottlieb, and we are on the eve of Mythic Championship 4, which is effectively a pro tour in Barcelona that is modern and modern Horizons draft. And I submitted my decklist a day early. I had a day of travel to sit and think about it, and I have yet to change a card, which could be a good or a bad sign. And I'm playing Jund in the tournament. We're going to do a deep dive on Jund because that deck was previously pretty bad and now I think is quite good. And given that I'm going to be the one answering questions, I don't think I should be steering for this episode. Nope. I'm going to take advantage of this and put you on the spot and make you defend all your choices and defend this deck choice in general. And it's probably a bit of a controversial deck choice given our past stances on Jund, a deck that both of us kind of bemoaned for a very long time. But like the other deck that you and I often badmouth, Blue-Eye Control, Jund is one of my favorite decks in the format. It's what I would love to be playing. I just thought it was a bad choice for a very long time. And finally, it feels like the deck has turned the corner. You agree and you have picked it up for this Mythic Championship. And I'm excited to talk through all your choices and exactly why you ended up on this deck list. Why don't we start just because we know many of our listeners uh, are just driving in their cars out for a run as they listen to the podcast. Why don't you just hit us with your deck list? Tell us exactly what you're playing. Tell us the 75 and then we'll get in some discussion about the deck. Yeah. So this is where I am right now. And normally I would be furiously changing cards. And like I said, for the last 24 hours, I haven't really wanted to change anything, but this is certainly subject to change. So if I end up playing Mono Red Phoenix or something. I don't think that's going to happen, but, you know, just in case. I reserve that right, you know? Okay, but, fair enough. Uh, the deck list has, deck list has four Tarmogoyf, three Scavenging Ooze, two Season Pyromancer, four Bloodbraid Elf, four Liliana of the Veil, three Ran and Six, four Lightning Bolt, two Fatal Push, three Assassin's Trophy, one Abrupt Decay, four Inquisition of Kozilek, two Thoughtseize, 24 lands, including eight Fetch Lands, two Raging Ravines, two Nurturing Peat Lands, one Baron Moor, and that land composition is important for Renan 6. And then the sideboard is three Leyline of the Void, three Graf Digger's Cage, two Plague Engineer, two Collective Brutality, two Choke, one Ancient Grudge, one Thrag Tusk, one Vraska Golgari Queen. And if that went a little fast for you folks, don't worry about it. We're going to talk more about all those cards. The way I think I want to set this up is we're actually going to talk matchups. We usually do this by going individual card breakdown. I think if we just get into the matchups that you're you're anticipating in Modern, it'll naturally bring out discussion about these individual cards. So we'll go that way. But let's go broader first. Let's talk why Jund. Why is this the time that this deck shines? Obviously, some new prints, Ren and Six, Plague Engineer. These are big, big pickups for this deck. But I think a lot of the issues in the past weren't necessarily about, oh, our cards are bad. It was about, oh, this strategy is bad. Trying to do this in modern is bad. Why are things different now? Why is this the right time for Jund? There is, or there there was a time when Tron was very, very big and was a large portion of the metagame. And that matchup is about as bad as you could possibly expect from Jund and there was also, like going back further, Jund had gotten some new cards, things like Kolagon's Command and stuff like that. But for the most part, it stayed exactly the same, whereas other decks kept getting new prints and like new decks would be created and stuff like that. 
just for like a long time, Jund was slowly getting worse and worse and worse. And then granted, uh, Bloodbraid Elf got unbanned and that that gave it like a little bit of a resurgence. But the, a lot of the same problems were still there where you're like this disruptive beatdown deck that struggles to really close games in a lot of different matchups. And Bloodbraid Elf certainly helps with that. But it's not necessarily enough to actually move the needle in a lot of instances. So a lot of it was just like, well, the the decks that exist in modern are very, very bad for Jund. And they all require you to have these hammers in your sideboard. Like you need a bunch of Fulminator Mages or a bunch of Graveyard Hate. And now I think that we're not really there where there are certainly some matchups where you need that sort of stuff, right? But now you have cards like Rand 6 and Bloodbraid Elf uh, season Pyromancer to a lesser degree where you're kind of front-loaded in some of the matchups and now without having to play Fulminator Mage in the sideboard because I don't expect a lot of Tron, I expect a lot of Eldrazi Tron. I think you actually have the slots to fight the the vast majority of matchups that exist and from what I expect to be played in this tournament, things like Azorius Control, Is it Phoenix, Eldrazi Tron, Humans... Uh, and Hogak, I think those are like the, the top five or six decks for me in your matches. I like Jun's position a lot because it actually is good against those decks versus before where like the top 10 decks, you had like eight bad matchups. Yeah, definitely been a big shift in the modern metagame as of late. You mentioned the decline of big mana. I think that's a huge reason why Jund has improved. I think if you're choosing Jund, you're kind of making a, a big statement. You're saying... Either the modern format has slowed down or you believe discard-based disruption to be effective. And I think for a long time, both of those things were just patently untrue. They were completely false statements. Yes. And people were slamming Jund. is like slamming the, the square Jund peg into the round hole. It didn't work. Do you see those two statements having turned the corner? What, what do you think about discard as a strategy right now? Do you think it's effective disruption as it stands? And does the London Mulligan play into that? at all? Do you think people are taking more mulligans and does that incentivize you to have more Inquisition of Kozilek and Thoughtseize in your deck? I don't think the mulligan factors into it too much. I'm not super stoked. You know, if my opponents are like mulliganing aggressively in their Tron deck or whatever, it's like, yeah, I'm going to play an Inquisition or a Thoughtseize and I'm still just going to lose to you. You know, it is more about matchup stuff than anything else. It just feels to me like Jund is actually well positioned again. The discard stuff is fine, but mostly the a lot of the top decks in the format have lightning bolt or no real way to kill Tarmogoyf. And Tarmogoyf is actually like keyword big is good again. So Tarmogoyf is certainly more playable now than it was before when you would look to something like, you know, having young Pyromancer and Mardu or whatever. Like that was a stronger card for you. I think Tarmogoyf is actually good. You have main deck graveyard hate in scavenging ooze. And Azorius Control is super good right now, as much as I hate to say it. It actually has a a lot of excellent cards and, like Jund, is also pretty well positioned against the top tier of the metagame. So the fact that you have Renin 6, Bloodbraid Elf, Liliana, like all of those cards are nightmares for Blue-White. I like hearing you say that you're a fan of Blue-White right now because I also agree with you. I have a feeling I know the answer to this. Why didn't you play Blue-White if you feel that way? Anyone who asked me what they should play, I told them blue-white. Why I am not playing it myself is I I honestly think that Jund might have a better matchup spread 
uh, at least like, you know, within the top 10 decks or so. And basically every deck that I considered playing, I was just like, man, I lose to Jund. And at that point, it's like, well, why aren't I just playing this deck? And I think there are a lot of parallels between Blue White and Jund because they're both kind of like fair-ish mid-range decks or whatever. But I, I feel like Jund is a little bit better at doing the things that you want to be doing in this format. And it has less of a fail rate, which, again, could just be nonsense, could just be making excuses for me to not play Blue-White or whatever. But I, I don't think that's the case. I was still working on Blue-White decks. There was always you know, the the thing in the back of my mind where I'm just like, oh, you know, like I, I want to be able to be able to audible into blue white if it comes to it. And so I was updating that deck. I was updating like modern red Phoenix and the Hogak decks and stuff like that. Like I'm paying attention to all the decks. Meanwhile, like I'm kind of just like hyper-focused on Jund. Yeah, that seems fine. I agree with you in terms of the fail rate argument. And to me, I, I say it more as feel, whereas I believe blue white to be a fine deck. It still feels bad in a lot of spots. And Maybe John gives it more of an illusion of agency, even if that's not actually true. And that's a really bad way to choose a deck. But ultimately, you have to be happy with your deck choice. And that can mean a lot of different things. But I think feel does probably factor into it. I I'm not saying I would have specifically chosen John based on that. But I think it would have inspired my testing. And maybe that would have shaped me more towards the John direction. Uh, a little bit more joy in playing that archetype. Well, it's it's weird because a lot of the issues I had with Blue White were that you had to play a bunch of creature removal and then you still ended up not having like a great matchup against humans. Uh -huh. So if you wanted to actually be good against humans, you had to play a bunch of spot removal or different Wrath of Gods or whatever, or try and play Terminus, which is super high variance. And now I think that humans is just very bad against a lot of the top decks. Like I think a lot of humans pilots are going to jump to Jund or is it Phoenix, Eldrazi Tron, Blue White Control, which I think is going to prop up the numbers for those decks. And I think that humans is not going to be super well represented at this tournament, which means that Blue White Control now has an easier time. Like you can main deck three or four for some negations. You can play a bunch of Planeswalkers. You can right. shave on sweepers a little bit. And there's just like a lot of stuff that you get to get away with now from the blue white side of things that make your deck so much better like if you wanted to be able to tune a blue white deck to beat like eight of the top 10 decks you absolutely could but the last mc humans was i think something like 13 percent of the metagame or whatever and it was just too large of a portion to actually do that and you also still had problems with a bunch of different decks but now you have force negation you have narset People have figured out to sideboard Monastery Mentor, which is a nice little shift in a lot of different matchups. So I don't know. Blue Blue White does jun things really well. And I think a lot of whether or not it is good or not hinges on whether or not humans is there is part of the metagame. And like Jund is, is certainly benefiting a lot from that too, where a lot of these decks like Tron, for example, is not a huge portion of the metagame anymore. So it, it opens space up for both of these mid-range style decks to actually be hyper-focused in on a certain metagame and actually succeed. I love that you mentioned increased counts of Force of Negation. Yuta Takahashi just took down the God of Modern tournament. Well, I guess defended his God of Modern title. I'm not exactly sure how yeah. that tournament plays out. I think he just gets like a buy into the final, but playing with four Force of Negation in the main deck. And I think that's a really interesting, interesting angle for Blue White to take on going into this PT. It's a lot, but like you, you really don't care. You have so many cheap sources of card advantage with that deck. Right. 
So yeah, blue, blue white control, definitely very good. I'm right there with you on blue white control. A fine choice. I do want to say this one time, and I promise this will be the only time I mention it. It feels like Amulet could do really well into this field. And I know like it got nothing. So there's not yes. a lot of reason for people to explore it. But all the things you're talking about, I'm like, man, would I love to play Amulet? I'm going to be watching Edgar really closely to see if he feels similarly and brings out his pet modern deck for this tournament. Because I know most of the Amulet players have been stepping away, quite frankly, over the last few weeks. They played the Team Open Series, the team of Dilks Ayers and Edgar, kind of famous for being Amulet Masters, and they didn't include Amulet in their modern slot. So we'll have to see if it comes back around. But all this talk, it just feels like I would have reached exactly the conclusion you did. I think you're making the right call. But if I want to go to the next level and target you and target everyone else who's getting to the same place you are, man, does Amulet sound real good right now. Yeah, Amulet does sound good. Also, Titan Shift was a deck that I explored Mm -hmm. fairly briefly. Just, you know, came to the conclusion that it's just sort of a bad deck. But when you look at things on paper, these Primeval Titan decks against Is It Phoenix... Uh, Eldrazi Tron, Jun, Blue White Control, Humans, like you just smush all of them. Yeah, we'll have to see if that actually happens in practice or if that's just a theoretical advantage those Primeval Titan decks have over the field. Let's get back to Jun, though, and let's talk matchups because yes. that's really what this all comes down to. You've anticipated a metagame. I want to hear exactly why you feel so advantaged against these top decks. So we're going to go deck by deck and talk through the matchup. And we can start with what I still believe to be the top dog going into this tournament, although there's some contenders at this point. It would be Is It Phoenix, untouched by bands, uh, already competing for the title of best deck in modern. This deck is looking the same as it did. Aria, Flame, now has decreased the reliance on graveyards. And if you were to just go back a month ago, it seemed like Is It Phoenix was the clear runaway favorite going into this PT. Has that changed broadly? And then specifically, what do you think about Jund into Is It Phoenix? I have a theory. And I think that a lot of Is It Phoenix players are going to realize how bad they have it against Azorius, Jund, and Hogak. And I think that those three are going to be the three biggest decks in the tournament, uh, assuming the Is It Phoenix players realize that those three decks are going to be big. And I I would just assume that Is It Phoenix is just kind of going to kind of drop off because Is It struggles against all three of them. And you can do things specifically to help in each one, but you're starting from a deficit. You only have X amount of sideboard cards, et cetera, et cetera. And with fewer humans in the field. It also means that is it Phoenix is a deck full of like bolts and flame slashes and lava darts that just doesn't have any good targets. And you have thing in the ice, which doesn't do anything. So what, what are you really doing with Phoenix other than, you know, trying to get people with Arclay Phoenix. And if if that's the case, I would look at playing mono red Phoenix instead. And I I realize that they're vastly different decks, you know, like one is this kind of like combo control deck and one is just a straight burn deck. But realistically, Monored Phoenix seems way more well-positioned than Is It Phoenix does. And Is It Phoenix v. Jund was the, the first step for me like actually looking at Jund because I was like, this matchup is so horrendous. And I just kind of like went down the line playing different decks, kept losing to Jund, was like, okay, fine. Yeah, you mentioned keyword big, and really there's nowhere that shines more 
than in the Is It Phoenix matchup. They picked up like Magmatic Sinkhole as a way to possibly deal with Tarmogoyf, but it's really not that hard for you to outsize even that at this point. And uh, Tarmogoyf can be a bit of a nightmare card for them, especially where their thing in the ices are particularly vulnerable to some of your spot removal. Right, and they just play one creature, like one Tarmogoyf, make it huge, make sure that the Phoenix player never gets traction, like never gets to stick a thing in the ice or stick an Aria. Eventually, they will have a bunch of spot removal to beat Arclight Phoenix or Scavenging Ooze or just, you know, Bloodbraid Elf into another threat or whatever. And Is It Phoenix just has a really, really tough time. And a friend of the cast, Matt Costa, messaged me with a Phoenix deck list. And we were talking about it a little bit. And I'm like, I'm, I'm glad that you're trying to play this. If I were playing Phoenix, I would have two copies of Factor Fiction in my sideboard to try and help fight Jund. And uh-huh. he he might actually be playing them. Like, <laughs> he was pretty excited about it. Yeah, certainly need a way to recoup some card advantage there. Is it Phoenix a deck that's pretty adept at spinning its wheels? But the only real source of card advantage often comes from those Arclight Phoenixes. And you have a pretty well-positioned card to deal with those in Scavenging News, assuming you're able to keep that on the battlefield. Maybe this is a fine time to talk about that being the graveyard card of choice. For a long time, we were seeing the... Nile spell bombs in the main deck. That was the big pickup for these green black X decks and how they were dealing with the Phoenix metagame. You kind of see this matchup as so favorable at this point. You don't even need to go that hard. You can just play this softer graveyard hate. I love Nile spell bomb more, more than I should more than anyone that card should definitely get added to my favorite cards of all time list. I think it is just so good. It's such low opportunity cost. It has a lot of insane side benefits, like you know, just pumping your Tarmogoyf and so many things incidentally use the graveyard and whatever. Now Spellbomb's great. I had two in my main deck for a very, very long time because I knew that Hogak was going to be popular and it's not a great matchup in game one, mostly because you can't interact with their graveyard outside of scavenging use, which is very slow. And I thought, like, hey, I'll have these Nile Spell Bombs. They'll be fine against Phoenixes. They'll be fine against Snapcaster Mages. And just, like, time and time again, they were just not that good. Hogak would just beat me anyway until I got to sideboard and add in, like, six more Graveyard Hate cards, you know? Just, like, blood breeding into them is not great. In Jund Mirrors, I used to really like Nile Spell Bomb because you could make players, both players go hellbent with Liliana, and then you have a turn where you draw two cards, probably Mm. hit a threat, maybe two, and then you're just super far ahead, you know? But instead, like, both players have access to Renin Six, Liliana basically never locks out a game anymore, and it's just medium, you know? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Maybe this is a spot, I don't know if we want to go full-on, like, sideboard guide territory, but I do want to talk about how your sideboard construction contemplates these top decks. Obviously, a lot of graveyard hate. Is that the plan against Phoenix? We talked about how that's generally a losing plan. You don't want to go too hard down that road because they do do a nice job of diversifying threats now. How do you see yourself setting up for the postboard games? So I have three ley lines and three graph diggers cages. And I think that with the London Mulligan, and I'm not a math guy, but just going off of feel, I just I felt like four ley lines was really heavy. And that if I wanted to mulligan somewhat aggressively for graveyard hate, it's it's fine if it's a cage or if it's a ley line, it's close to the same thing against Hogak, and I didn't want to flood on ley lines, but just like drawing multiple cages is actually good. So 
I'm I'm at three and three. I like Leyline against Phoenix. I don't like Cage, and I would love Nile Spellbomb if I had it. But Leyline, the fact that it costs zero mana, it's difficult for them to remove, and it's not only going after Arclight Phoenix, but to some degree, it's going after Faithless Looting and things like Magmatic Sinkhole. And they also have Finalia Promise, which I think is a very powerful card. So Leyline, I think, does enough work that it's worth including in that matchup. And certainly there are sideboard plans that people can have that where they sidestep it almost entirely. But I don't think that people are there yet. I think for the most part, they're like, oh, okay, like I'll have my three Arias, I'll have two Finales, and I'll keep those in, and then I'll board in like one Sahili or whatever. And they're not doing too much to actually sidestep it because they all already have Aria. And Jund is one of the few decks in the format that just has a bunch of disenchants, incidentally. Right. Yeah, good spot to be in. Maybe since we're talking Graveyard Hate and those type of options, this is a good time to move to a matchup where you mentioned a bunch while we were discussing as a Phoenix. Hogak. Obviously, this deck just hit with a ban. Seems to have somewhat laughed it off. Canister just winning the modern challenge, I believe, undefeated with the new take on Hogak. Basically, just got rid of the bridges, played some more, I believe, Seder Wayfinders, the direct replacement for bridge, even though they're very different cards, but more effectively doing the Vengevine Hogak stuff with the addition of that card. This deck's still a monster, I'm pretty sure. How do you feel about the Hogak deck going into this tournament? Why'd you ultimately get off it? And then we'll talk about Jund versus it. I think Hogak is going to be one of the three most popular decks. I think that Azorius and Jund might be more popular than it, but maybe that's wrong. It's it's funny to me that this was a graveyard combo deck that lost two combo pieces, and now instead they just have more ways to enable quick Venge Vines and Hogaks. Mm. So they lost the combo aspect, but they're a better beatdown deck as a result. So... I went through a lot of different iterations and possible plans for trying to figure out how to best combat that deck with Jund, because this is one of the matchups, certainly, where you have a bunch of discard spells that are fine, you have a bunch of Doom Blades that are pretty bad, and then a bunch of Planeswalkers that suck. You know, like, your, your deck is just overall pretty bad against them, which is one of the reasons why Jund was pretty bad in Modern not too long ago, you know? Uh, So this is the one matchup out of the top few decks where I'm just like kind of scooping game one just because there's not a whole lot you can do. And then hoping to make up for that in the sideboard games. I have a question about this deck and maybe it's silly. Is there a possibility that banning Bridge from Below actually makes this deck better in the long term? Like when it was a Bridge from Below focus combo deck, you would have more dead cards going into games two and three and you were a little bit softer. Once the entire format became about the deck, it was harder for them to get a robust game two and three plan. Not to say they didn't win a bunch of games two and three. That was one of the problems with the deck. But I do think that given the loss of Bridge from Below Altar of Dementia, it's games two and three are probably a little bit better at this point, even if game one is markedly worse, but you play more games two and three than you do one. And it's possible this ban just tricked us into building our Hogek decks properly. Any merit to that? Yeah. The problem is that like if if your opponent had Hogek Altar and Bridge and you had Seder Wayfinder, you're just at a huge disadvantage, right? So mm-hmm. as long as the mirror existed, I don't think people ever would have taken the deck building direction that way. Great but point. I mean, now that we're here, it kind of looks that way. It's like, yeah, they can't combo kill, mill your entire deck or whatever, but 
they're just more consistently putting you effectively dead on board on turn three, which doesn't look good. You know, not not a strong look for the format. So why are we talking about Jund as opposed to Hogak is the question. I don't know. Like it, it still has inconsistency issues, uh, which maybe for modern just should not be a thing that you care about. Mm-hmm. But I expect that people know what's up and we'll have sideboards like I do, where I just have a bunch of ley lines, cages, plague engineers, and people are going to show up to beat them. Maybe that's dumb. Realistically, uh, what happened for me was I, I tried basically every deck except for it because I was just under the assumption that like, yeah, people immediately cut their graveyard hate after the banning. And now that's why this deck is doing well. And then I got to a place sort of where you did where it's like, oh, actually, maybe this deck is better in some ways than it was before. So the last week or so, I spent time testing a few different versions and it's certainly good. I don't know. I, I have I have no good no good excuse for you. I think okay. that again, maybe Jun's matchup spread is better, but that's it. Do you want to give me obviously these are just guesses? Do you want to try and give me some percentages for your matchup as far as game one and game two and three? How would you estimate your Jun versus Hogak matchup to go? Uh, game one, I'm maybe like twenty five percent to win, mm-hmm. and then post board, I think I'm in the seventies. Okay, that's a big swing, bigger than I would have expected, honestly. Yeah. Well, it, it goes from you having no relevant cards to just having all the relevant cards. Mm-hmm. Cards like Tarmogoyf don't do anything unless you have a graveyard hate card. And then once you have a graveyard hate card, Tarmogoyf is suddenly awesome because it just brick walls all of their dinky creatures, you know? Okay. Uh, and then I have enough graveyard hate cards where I can actually double up on them because it's pretty easy for them to have like one Assassin's Trophy. So I, I, I don't think you can play four Leyline and call it a day. I think you have to go over the top of that. Well, you have certainly done that with this sideboard. As you mentioned, it looks like about eight cards that are very effective here. Talk about Plague Engineer in the matchup real quick. I think people slept on this as an effective answer to Hogak for a long time. Secret's out at this point, but just give some some clarity as to how effective that card is. Yeah, I mean, Plague Engineer is solid in the matchup. It's not like, uh, you know, it's not the first place you go to, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you would do Graveyard Hate stuff first, but... Once you lock down their graveyard, say their graveyard doesn't matter anymore, how are they going to try and beat you? And it's probably by, you know, just hard casting blood gas and venge vines and hogax and trying to get you that way. And once you're at that point, maybe you had an ooze for a little bit and they kill it with a lightning axe or an assassin's trophy. And now their blood gas that were on the battlefield that couldn't attack in your charm can now just alpha strike you every turn. Well, you have a way to actually deal with an army of blood gas that keep coming back. And if you name zombie, you get to deal with a bunch of their little creatures, which makes it really difficult for them to actually cast Hogak. So maybe once you kill the first Hogak with assassin's trophy, you can pick off all of their little stuff uh, and make it so they can't recast it. So plague engineer kind of helps you stabilize post graveyard hate. Yeah, a real coherent game plan starts to come into picture once you're able to take out those turn three combo kills, basically. You start to see how your cards are individually advantaged against theirs. Interesting to see what this deck does. Do you want to say anything about Dredge? Is Are we at the point where Hogak is better Dredge? Do you expect Dredge to have a presence at this tournament? I think some people might play Dredge, but I don't know why, because Dredge ultimately is a graveyard beatdown deck. Like they, they do win with damage and they have a game plan that just buries people going long, but we're not really there. And 
if Hogak is one of the best decks and people are super scared about turn three kills to the point where they need graveyard hate and they need it immediately, Dredge just gets worse and worse and worse. So not only do I think Dredge is a bad Hogak deck, but I also think that even if that were not the case and they were different decks with uh, their own sets of pros and cons, I think that Dredge would just be walking into a field of graveyard hate anyway, which makes it not really desirable. Right there with you. I think Hogak's the right call if you want to go graveyard-based. Remember the arena deck list saying, if it's free, it's me. Hogak continues to somehow be a free 8-8 trampler. Uh, This card is going to do work for all of its time in modern. We'll see how long it gets to run rampant over the format. uh, And if graveyards are ultimately toned down at some point. But they're not for this tournament. So Hogak free to rumble across the battlefield. Uh, what do you want to talk about next? How about how about we go to Azorius Control? Because we mentioned that is probably the most played, one of the most played decks for this tournament in our top three or four decks. And obviously this matchup is going to be a big one. It's going to determine what the superior mid-range deck is often defined by which one pulls ahead in the quasi-mirror. So how do you see Azorius Control playing against the Jund decks right now? So I made my first couple iterations of Jund, and as I do, I was mostly just like shaving threats for answers and, you know, things like Nile Spell Bombs. So I had like two Bloodbraid Elves, and I wanted to try Season Pyromancer, so I had three of those. And while Season Pyromancer is quite good, just in, in general, it has these problems where it like strains your mana base, and occasionally Blue Eye can field of ruin you off of red anyway. And I I found a lot of times that they would just like play a planeswalker and I wouldn't be able to do very much. You know, I I had no way to actually punish them. And the whole reason things got to that point was because I was only playing two blood braids. Mm-hmm. And because I expect Azorius to be the most popular deck in the tournament, I'm playing four blood braids. I don't care if blood braid is not great in a lot of other spots. The fact that it is the best possible card you could have for Azorius means that I'm playing four copies. And if they ever, you know, tap out to Narset or Jace or whatever, I want to be able to threaten it plus play another spell. You know, like that is the exact perfect thing that you can be doing in that spot. Yeah, Bloodbraid attacking Jace, one of its most iconic uses. They shared a standard together, uh, certainly in an interaction we've seen many many times. I do want to talk about the new cards, though, in this matchup. I think they're the really interesting ones. Renin Six. How does that change the dynamic of Jund versus Azorius Control? Having a two-mana Planeswalker threat has to do a lot to benefit you in this matchup. Yeah, not having any Dark Confidants is another reason why I'm behind in that matchup, but I stand firm that Dark Confidant is so bad everywhere else that I'm not going to play it. I can see playing one copy, which... Tom Ross did in my Golgari mid-range deck when he top eighted regionals a couple months ago. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. I could see playing one. But Renin 6 is a two-mana threat that is harder for Azorius to actually deal with. They need something like Detention Sphere or Celestial Purge versus Path to Exile, Teferi, whatever. Renin 6 doesn't give you raw cards, only gives you lands, but that means you're going to be able to make all your land drops. Uh, things like Raging Ravine, Nurturing Peatland, Baron Moor are all super threatening in combination with it. But even if you're just making land drops with it, you are drawing an extra piece of cardboard every turn, and the ultimate is no joke. So I think that just Renin 6 
heads up against Dark Confidant. I would rather have Ren 6 against Azorius, but I don't know. I, I do think it's kind of close uh, to the point where I don't think I'm really losing out on anything. And Ren 6 can pressure them or their Planeswalkers, which I think is another huge aspect. Sure. Now I want to get to Season Pyromancer. You mentioned not at its best in this matchup due to some mana concerns, sizing not the best. I have to admit, I'm surprised to not see Tireless Tracker in this spot. That seems like a card you would really want here. Yeah, I had two trackers. I don't even know. That's that's like the one thing where just tracker against most things, like against mirror matches and is it Phoenix and stuff, like you you play it, you get a clue, it dies, and I guess that's one less bolt they have that can be thrown at your planeswalker or your bloodbraid elf or whatever. So it it does matter, but just being able to make three or four power between a bunch of different bodies and have the flashback ability too has been a lot better in these grindy matchups. I think Azorius Control is like the one matchup where I'm just like, oh yeah, Tracker Slam Dunk is way better. Mm-hmm. But everywhere else, I think that Season Pyromancer is better. Sure, that makes sense to me. And you've already slanted some of your composition towards the Azorius matchup by playing for Bloodbraid Elf. And you have to have a very balanced approach when it comes to modern. So I can't fault you for taking the card that's maybe a little bit stronger in a vacuum than Tireless Tracker. I just know your love affair with that card. And then in combination with Ren and Six, that endless supply of lands, you know, you don't reach that point where you have a Tireless Tracker and you're not making land drops anymore because you just make every land drop for the rest of the game. Uh, and often right. with Fetch Land, so you're yep. getting two cards from each land drop with your Tireless Tracker. It gets insane quick. And if things shift even more towards the control side, uh, the mid-range side of the format, then I certainly see Tireless Tracker taking a spot. But for a very open field, I can support the choice of Season Pyromancer. Yeah, the, the games are just a little bit too fast-paced where you can uh, play something like, I'm trying to think of a good comparison here, where it's like, Ancestral Vision, which is like this slow, grindy kind of like inevitable thing. Like once this comes off, like I'll almost certainly be so far ahead that I'm going to kill you versus like some sort of like quick draw to like Charter Course, right? Like obviously Ancestral is a much more powerful card. And if all of the games are dictated by who does the biggest thing going long, Ancestral is stronger. But for Jund... Having season, like you're talking about Ren and Six plus Tireless Tracker, right? Ren and Six plus Season Pyromancer means that you get a quick burst of two cards, no matter what. Sure. If you and have tokens. some dead cards, you can make like one ones along the way, right? And you actually get to play Pyromancer, draw those cards, and then be able to cast whatever you drew off the Pyromancer, which I think is huge versus Tracker, which is just super slow for having to spend mana to actually crack the clues. And I, I think that. I was overall more happy with like the quick burst from Pyromancer as long as I wasn't running out of gas going long. And I think I've built my deck in such a way where I'm not really running out of gas. Okay. Well defended. I think you've made your case for Pyromancer here. Why don't we head over to the sideboard? Because here's a card that we haven't seen really shine all that much in Modern, despite the fact that it's been around for Modern's entire history. Choke. How important is Choke in this matchup? How much are you leaning on that card? I hate choke in a vacuum. I think it is mostly pretty bad. And if people are prepared for it, they can do things like play more celestial colonnades, glacial fortresses, mystic gates, whatever. 
And for whatever reason right now, I think it's because of Field of Ruin, people are so high on their basic lands and their Azorius decks. They're like, look at my seven basic islands. Isn't this wonderful? And I'm just like over here salivating, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I actually think the choke is really good for specifically this weekend. A lot of people are going up to two or even three copies of Celestial Purge trying to kill Ren Six and Liliana. And choke is one of the few cards that actually gets under that. And besides Teferi Time Raveler and Detention Sphere, they just are straight up cold to it. And I don't think they have enough, I guess big Teferi too, but most people aren't even playing that. They don't even really have enough like blue sources to function when a choke is on the battlefield. And Cryptic Man, sure. I I keep forgetting things, but whatever. Uh, These are all temporary answers. So yeah, I I really like choke as this hammer against blue-white. Obviously it gets a little bit worse with open deck lists and I haven't tried this at all yet, but I think the choke also might be good against Is It Phoenix. Yeah, interesting. I was wondering about that. I could certainly see games. I, I think it's probably variable games where it completely closes them out and then games where it can kind of miss their mana base, unfortunately, if they have a very uh, Spire Bluff Canal heavy draw. But on the whole, I could see it being good there. What about Force of Negation? Does that concern you at all? If these decks are going heavier on Force of Negation builds, one, do you anticipate them being sided out against you? So maybe not a card you have to worry about as much. Two, do you think that slows down the effectiveness of a choke plan? That's a good question, actually. Uh, I I would expect them to get shaved when you get to bring in things like Celestial Purge and Monastery Mentor, which is like a proactive way to answer Planeswalkers potentially. Mm-hmm. And they could even side in just more counter magic in the form of Dovin's Veto. I would expect Force to get trimmed. But at the same time, I do think that they kind of want to like jam Narset and counter your Liliana. So right. I don't know. That's interesting and a, a thing that I will have to talk to blue white players about uh or at least i would were i willing to do my due diligence realistically i think what's going to happen is that i'm going to bank on them shaving some and then i'm going to you know try and have a discard spell or at least like have multiple things that i can jam turn after turn right like if i play red and six on turn two and choke on turn three like one of those is going to stick most likely and if they have to force both of them then like that's awesome too you know, the worst case scenario of them like playing a planeswalker, forcing my choke, like that's obviously bad. But if they just have to force my choke after, I don't know, like pathing my time or going for whatever, like that's still a good win for you. You know, it's like you're boarding in a three mana card that they absolutely have to deal with. I don't know if that means that I should like my anti blue white card should be a creature, but it is interesting. I don't know. I mean, let's also keep in mind open deck list, which is something we haven't really discussed up until this point, this seems like a fine point to do so. Your opponents are going to know that you have access to choke. They can account for that appropriately, maybe even leaving in more force of negation if they see fit. How do you think open deckless in general affects Jund? Is it a pro for them? Is it a con for them? I think no one wants to mulligan against Jund. Uh, kind of what we opened the cast talking about with the London mulligan and everything like people are sort of incentivized to mulligan, but you really don't want to, cause that's kind of what this deck, you know, wants you to just be doing is be down a resource for no reason. So f- for the main deck, I, it doesn't change a damn thing. I don't think, I, I don't mm-hmm. think at any point, you know, like if, if I had a different set of cards or whatever, like people would even necessarily play differently or mulligan differently against me. Uh, the sideboard is kind of interesting where, I'm sort of thinking about this from a game theory where it was like, oh, if I play against Tron and I only have one damping sphere, then they'll think they have to board in a bunch of nature's claims because they'll have like two or three of them or whatever. 
Uh, but then it's just like, well, I just hope that no one plays Tron and then it won't matter. But like, it is, it is cool that you can sort of game people like this. And I certainly thought about open deck list in regards to, should I play one or two chokes? And realistically, I think if they see that I have X chokes in my sideboard, they're going to think it's one or two. They are going to probably not play around it because like, especially if you think it's a one of it's like, what are the odds? Right. Ultimately at the end of the day, I don't think it changes much, but it, it might just be better to do the normal Jun thing where you're like, all right, tireless tracker is my sideboard card as an example, or Chandra acolyte of flame or whatever. And it's like, what are you, what are you going to do now? You know, you're going to do the exact same stuff that you were going to do. And like, I'm just going to beat you heads up in a fair battle. And there's none of this like gamesmanship going on. And mm-hmm. I'm not really giving them any way to actually get equity on me by presenting more non-creature threats, I guess. So there's, there's merit, I suppose, but realistically, I think a lot of people are just going to see choke, think I have one and then not change their composition at all. Right. Uh, another card I wanted to talk about real quick with open deck list collective brutality. I would usually not be a huge fan in this matchup, but you mentioned the monastery mentor plans, which are coming into fruition in spots where you're targeting Monastery Mentor, I think Collective Brutality gets a lot of points. So that's another interesting little wrinkle. Uh, I do think you have, you have sideboard cards that are quite a bit more effective because of having this open information. Yeah, I mean, Blue-White is also a matchup where I'm going to keep in a decent amount of like trophies, decays, and some lightning bolts just for mm. Planeswalkers and if they have Mentor and stuff. So I'm sideboarding pretty light in the matchup, like probably just cutting like two pushes and two bolts. So I'm pretty well set up to deal with Mentor, or at least I I planned to be. Uh, I wasn't even planning on bringing in Brutality, but certainly okay. could. I, I guess that like kind of sucks to get forced too, but oh well. Yeah, that, that is true. There's a lot of cards that suck to get forced, quite frankly. Uh, one of the more powerful additions to Modern, as we predicted when we were reviewing that set. Vraska, card you like here? What, what exactly is Vraska for? Why do you include that card in your sideboard? <laughs> I mean, it's not that uncommon to have a big four drop, right? Right. Why this one, though? It draws you cards and kills three mana planeswalkers. I, th- I think that's super huge in the mirror. Like, you could make a case for something like Huntmaster or uh, Chandra Torch of Defiance, but Vraska actually just kills the things that you want to kill. No, I, I buy it. I, I think it's a fine choice. I wish you had non-red, non-block black options in this slot, but I I don't think you really have pure green ones. Stuff like Thrun is what just outdated. Like you can't do that anymore. All the best ones Ugh. are leaning on that color combination. So I get it. And I, I do like Vraska. I don't want to sound like I'm I'm crapping on the card. It's just not the default choice for John players. And I wanted to hear why you pushed in this direction. Yeah, Vraska also doubles as another disenchant against the war decks. I think three mana planeswalkers are huge, and Vraska is very good against those. Mm. You could make a case for any three drop that attacks being better against planeswalkers than Vraska, maybe. But then Vraska also like draws you cards and gains you life and stuff. So I don't know. I think, I think Vraska does a lot, and yeah, it, she is very flexible. You know, maybe costing four mana, like we're supposed to ask more from our cards or whatever, but I don't know. Someone suggested it to me and uh, I liked the idea, tried it, and she performed really well. Okay. Well, that sounds good to me. Anything else you want to say about the Azorius control matchup before we move on? 
No, not really. I mean, I, I tried a lot of different things, and ultimately what I came to was that for Liliana, for Bloodbraid is best. And for a long time, I did not have four of either of those cards and was still doing okay against Blue White, but it was like, wow, why are they like grinding me down so easily? And why is this like kind of seem trivial for them to actually stabilize and stuff? So I think that four of each of those cards is basically what makes Jund good in a lot of spots. And you can try and do weird things like main deck Nile Spell Bomb, but ultimately, again, it comes down to matchups and whether or not your deck is set up well already to beat their deck and doing cutesy stuff like cutting the hundred dollar cards from your deck is probably not the right way to go about things and like look at look at this deck i have so many hundred dollar cards in my deck it's got to be good right that is how it works i'm pretty sure pay to win that's what magic's always been about so lean into that nature i'm assuming you find this match would be very close no i I think i'm a pretty good favorite actually okay percentage you want to give me uh, like 60 game one, 65 game two or something like, mm-hmm. obviously they can win, but it, it's so hard for them to just get like any sort of traction. I have a feeling you're going to get a bunch of messages from Azorius players telling you why you're wrong about your 60, 65% matchup. Uh, I don't have Listen, an opinion. I, just, I, I don't know. So I, will I take just your- said that. I just said that their deck is good. I just mm-hmm. said that their deck is good. So they mm-hmm. should just leave me the hell alone. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Every single person that asked me, like, what should I play? I was just like, play Azorius. Are you stupid? Okay. So you are you like the deck. You just think you have a fine matchup with your particular Jun configuration. And let's not forget that configuration makes up a lot of this too. So even you Azorius players who want to yell at Jerry, keep in mind, you may not have played against his exact 75. You may not know how the matchup plays out once his sideboard plan is enacted. There's all kinds of little factors there, but it's good to hear you're confident in this matchup because I do think it'll be a prominent one across this entire PT. Yeah, if you're playing against a bunch of Jun decks that can't draw cards with their lands with Rain and Six and they have things like Hex Drinker, yeah, you're probably going to be doing pretty well, you know? Makes sense. All right, let's go to another matchup. How about we talk, I guess we're going to talk big mana. And for the most part right now, that means Eldrazi Tron, because like you, I don't anticipate Tron to have a huge footprint in this metagame. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe that's a, maybe that's my mistake and potentially your mistake as well. We talked about your deck maybe not being super well configured for the big Tron matchup, but let's start with the little Tron matchup. Eldrazi Tron, how do you see yourself lining up there? Yeah, you were, you were talking about big mana. I think Eldrazi Tron is like medium mana. Yeah, maybe that's fair. Sometimes they don't accelerate at all. Sometimes they turn two mana reshaper you and that's kind of whatever. And then sometimes they turn three Tron you and play like two mana reshapers and that's whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there are the games where they just go nutso with like Ugin and Karn and whatever. Uh, those are the bad ones. So uh, I also saw a little bit of talk about this matchup on Twitter today. I think all these days are just kind of blurring together, but it gave me a little bit of confidence where people were like, oh yeah, you know, like John is actually really good against Eldrazi and it was people I trust. It was like Allie. I, I didn't have a ton of experience in the matchup, but it definitely felt like things like Tarmogoyf, Bloodbraid Elf, these are very difficult things for Eldrazi Tron to contain and like go over the top of. And we talked about uh, Karn, the great creator, a decent amount over the last few podcasts, the last few modern podcasts. And the best way to beat that card is with pressure. So the fact exactly. that I have four Bloodbraid Elves is 
yeah, it's it's just great in that matchup. And I actually have ways to kill Fought Not Seer and stuff. So I don't know. I think I think I'm good in the matchup as long as they don't like exactly nut draw me. And that's just gonna happen some amount of the time. But I have some amount of discard, some amount of beatdown elements, and just disruption in the form of like Assassin's Trophy and stuff like that to the point where I feel like I'm not even drawing dead if they nut draw me. So things like Fulminator Mage just don't really belong right now. I, I do think that there are decks that have like Unearth and Fulminator Mage that are quite good against Tron and stuff like that. But I don't think Jun can really play Unearth because of Bloodbraid, which is sad because I love Unearth. And I don't think the Fulminator does enough against Eldrazi Tron because those games where you're both just kind of scrapping, it doesn't do anything. Right. Yeah, Fulminator Mage on the whole, a card that I don't ever want to play in my Jun deck. And maybe we talk a lot about cards that are fine at what they do, but if you have to play them, maybe you just shouldn't be playing the broader deck. And that's how I see Fulminator Mage. If I'm that concerned about big mana, I probably just shouldn't be playing Jund. Uh, and I'd rather play yeah. Jund at times when you don't have to include Fulminator Mage. And you've assumed this is one of those times, I think correctly so. This is a good time to bring up a question I had about removal, because you mentioned one of the reasons you like Jund right now is because size matters. Tarmogoyf being big, dodging lightning bolt, magmatic sinkhole, all those things uh, often coming into play. And I wonder if that played into your assessment of what removal spells you should play. Basically, I'm looking at the lightning bolt fatal push slots. And wondering if you ever messed around with decreasing Lightning Bolt, upping Fatal Push in consideration of things like Thought Not Seer, opposing Tarmogoyf's thing in the ice, or was it always just for Lightning Bolt, no consideration, that's where the removal suite starts for this deck? I kind of looked at it, but never actually tried it because not playing four Lightning Bolts in your Jun deck is probably one of those things where you're just like, what are you doing uh, with mm. your Jun deck, you know? I mean, obviously, like the the Golgari midrange decks that existed before did not play Lightning Bolt. And I think a, a lot of the same things were going on where size did matter or at least Lightning Bolt was not particularly good. And I think that Lightning Bolt is fine now. Plus, I'm incentivized to play all the Bloodbraid Elves. And I think enough of these matchups actually, you know, like you disrupt them and you do your thing or whatever. But Jund is basically never a deck that's going to like put someone in the chokehold, right? Like they are going to disrupt you a little bit and then try and kill you. And Lightning Bolt helps a little bit with that. And that's kind of why I'm playing two Raging Ravines too, even though I think that Raging Ravine is just terrible. It is garbage. But Mm -hmm. yeah, Lightning Bolt, even if it doesn't outright kill a thing in the ice, I think there are ways to maneuver games to the point where Lightning Bolt actually does something. Like whether it's just, you know, attacking like your seasoned pyromancer or bloodbraid elf into it or making attacks like that to the point where they can't block and then maybe you get to burn them out or figure out some way to burn them out. You know, I I think that lightning bolt is versatile and versatility matters. And there are a lot of matchups where Fatal Push itself is dead, and this deck actually makes good use of the three damage from Lightning Bolt. So I think I think three and three is a thing that maybe you could argue for, but it just, it doesn't seem right to me. Like I already have a bunch of Liliana's and Assassin's trophies and stuff like that. You know, it's not like I'm hurting in the way of killing bigger things. Like when I was building and testing Mardu, that was one of the decks where I was just like, God, I need more fatal push type things because I had lightning bolts and smiting helix, you know, and like I felt it there, but I don't really feel it here. Okay. 
That sounds fine. Yeah, I could see a lot of your cards line up perfectly well against the bodies of Eldrazi Tron, where I don't think you're hurting for more fatal pushes there. I have to say, as much as I do believe your deck to line up well against Eldrazi Tron, man, does it suck against actual Tron. Like, I'm looking at your sideboard, and you're just basically devoid Scoop. of options here. Yeah, I, I mean, is, is that the plan? You're just like, okay, you got it. You played Tron. Congratulations. God, I hope they mulligan to two or something, you know? Right. That's about as good as it gets for you. I mean, obviously you have Assassin's Trophy. You didn't do anything like Ghost Quarter in the main deck to recur with Ren and Six. Did you consider those options? I think that's pretty mopey in your extremely mana-hungry deck, but I've seen people do it. Yeah, I mean, if you can lock them out with Ren and Ghost Quarter, uh, I mean, they're still making a land drop every turn, basically. So eventually Mm -hmm. they're going to start hardcasting Warm Coils. But like, if you go Tarmogoyf and then Ren and Six, Ghost Quarter, you... Uh, I think you're a pretty big favorite to win that game. But yeah, the, the mana requirements on this deck are a little too tough, uh, especially with Season Pyromancer in the deck. Like, I don't even have Twilight Mire in my mana base, which physically pains me. It causes me pain with Scavenging Ooze in my deck because you have a Blood Crypt, four Blackleaf Cliffs, and two Swamps. And I have a Baron Mora, which obviously I don't ever want to like put onto the battlefield or whatever. But like, I have these eight Black Sources... Uh, that don't do anything with scavenging use. And you see this all the time with Jund, where oh, yeah. they'll play scavenging use and be able to like use it once, even though they only have they even though they have five mana. And it's just it's awful. And Twilight Mire fixes all of your problems and it's so good and the mana's so bad that I can't play it. Yeah, tough beat there. But I, I mean look, even if you had the ghost quarter, it's like this deck doesn't have any way to find ghost quarter. You're just like, oh I naturally drew my one yeah. of and <laughs> I got lucky. So. Yeah, you're hoping to mize. It's it's not really a solution. I like your approach of scooping. You made a metagame call. You've committed to that metagame call with the absence of Fulminator Mage. No real plan for the Tron matchup. And now you just have to hope it pans out. So Fulminator used to be fine in mid-range mirrors. So you could kind of justify it because, mm-hmm. you know, you would deploy that turn three in the mirror. And if they play Liliana, they're just like in bad shape, right? If they, if, if they tick up, you attack it. If they tick down, you just kill their land. Uh, and then against blue white, you needed ways to kill celestial colonnade. Right. And now you have things like assassin's trophy and they're cutting a lot of celestial colonnades. So full is just not even good in the mid range mirrors anymore because, uh, like Ren and six too. So against Tron fulminator was basically a time walk and you needed about five time walks to beat them. Right. So it was, it was generally not really worth it. Uh, I do think they're, might be metagames and situations where Surgical Extraction is the best Graveyard Hate card that you can play in Jund. And, you know, like if, if Hogak did not exist and Phoenix did exist and there was also, you know, some other deck that Surgical was fine against, like Grishel Brand or something, it's like, okay, well now we can like Stone Rain uh, Surgical the Tron decks and like that's actually a reasonable plan. But you just don't have a plan. Like Damping Sphere is also just super bad, so... There's, there's just nothing you can really do in the matchup, I don't think. And even if you have a bunch of those cards, you're still 2080. So there's no point. Right. What, what's the saying? Discretion is the better part of Valor here. You've shown a little discretion and just given this one up, I think correctly. So let's hope you dodge the matchup lottery when it comes to the MC. Uh, let's move on. Let's talk about the old yeah. top dog of the format. Uh, the deck that won the last MC in the hands of Eli Loveman. I want to talk humans right now. This is what you played. 
at the last MC. So certainly a deck you have some fondness for, some experience with. Did you consider humans for this tournament? Why ultimately didn't you play it? And then we'll get to how do you feel about Jun versus humans? I left home with, I want to say three decks. I had Mardu, Is It Phoenix, humans, four decks. I also had Hogak cards. Okay. I am currently borrowing the entire copy of humans to a friend of mine who just asked me for it today because he wants to play in the tournament for some reason. And no one else wanted them. Not a soul. No one was like, oh yeah, I really need Aether Vials. It's just not Mm -hmm. a thing. Like Plague Engineer is busted. Is it Phoenix is busted. Jund probably busted. All of these decks just like beat up on humans. A lot of cards beat up on humans. Humans just doesn't do anything anymore. Like it got some new stuff, but nothing that is good enough to actually help it. And uh, yeah, the, the metagame has just shifted completely. And I think is going to be represented at least within like the, the top tables in this tournament. It feels like every new card was hard targeting humans, like Ren and Six effectively killing their creatures. Then there's Plague Engineer, which let's not even get started on that card. Even Season Pyromancer is like fine in that matchup for buying you time. It's exactly what you want in a lot of spots. So yeah, I agree with your assessment. Yep. It doesn't seem like things are going particularly well for humans right now. Uh, also, just kind of the deck the, the humans is designed to target, the combo decks. You want to be like the disruptive aggro deck. It feels like most of those decks are absent right now, question mark, as I I worry a little bit, because whenever a deck is wholesale absent from modern, whenever a broader archetype is wholesale absent, there's often a window to jam through. I mentioned that with Big Mana and Amulet. I could see the same thing for some kind of hard combo deck right now, which feels like it's getting a little bit less focused than it previously would have with the decline of humans and even like fewer surgical extractions in the main deck that has an impact on whether combo can be executed successfully or not. Yeah. It's, it's funny though, because I think that the new two top dogs are Jun and Azorius and you're playing against like two different versions of the fun police. One of which has this force of will knockoff and the other one has a bunch of discard spells, you know? So combo has never really been good against those two archetypes. So yeah, humans might be much worse, but I do think that there are a lot of things keeping those weirdo combo decks in check. Like I was considering playing a damping sphere uh, for Tron and, you know, the sideboarding juke thing that I talked about and just like stuff like Neoform where I was just like, I, I don't know if I, if I don't have a discord spell and they don't brick for five turns, it's going to be hard to beat them. But then it's just like looking at like Azorius control and, and Jund at the top and, all these bad matchups. It's like, who could realistically play that deck? That's a fair question. Uh, somebody will. I'll tell you that. I don't know what the metagame percentage will be, but uh, it will be there, hopefully in low numbers. I want to back up a little bit, and I even hesitate to do yeah. so because my information is so outdated in this regard. I think appropriately so, but I used to play a lot of Storm. And I will tell you that as a Storm player, I would have happily signed up to play against Jund and Azorius Control every single round of the tournament. I'm also going back, I mean, probably four or five years at this point where these decks are almost completely different. But in those configurations, Storm had many effective ways to take on the combination of discard spells and counter magic. You could play around it for days very happily. I I know nothing about Storm in its present configuration versus those decks. Uh, I'm just saying that I think people have historically overstated how problematic those matchups are. I don't know if that's the case right now. Well, 
Azorius used to be easy because you just bottleneck them on mana somehow, right? Like you get down uh, Electromancer or Brawl or whatever, and they end up having just two mana counter spells or Cryptic Command or whatever, and eventually their hand just fills up with expensive cards and they can't cast them all. Now with Force of Negation, uh, I think things are much, much worse for Storm and decks like Storm. Uh, and then from the Jun side of things, like obviously I'm not building my deck with Storm in mind or whatever. But back in the day, like I used to, re- I, I respected Storm, you know, to the point where I had a decent amount of graveyard hate and things that interacted with their combo. And I would always have outs to empty the Warrens and whatever. And I guess, you know, you have Plague Engineer for that now, which is kind of great. Sure, that's true. So I, I don't know. I, I always beat up on Storm. It just felt like every single card I played was a nightmare. And I I certainly needed like a discard spell on turn one or whatever, but I just, I wasn't keeping bad hands. Like, don't be afraid to mold a five against a deck like that because it doesn't matter. And uh, cards like Tarmogoyf, like you can mostly side them out if uh, it's a matchup where you're not trying to race them. Like you, right. like Jund against Storm could actually just lock them out of the game. So like you don't need Tarmogoyf. And I think that was kind of the problem that a lot of people had in that matchup. Yeah, I, like I said, I'm not here to make the case for Storm. I will leave that to the dedicated Storm players. They can tell you whether or not it's good. Uh, I just think it's an interesting point. Often combo decks can find ways to prey on decks which seem hateful on their face. And I would have to do a, a much more thorough assessment to say that's the case here. But someone's going to look at it. We'll have to see if they find success when it comes to the MC. Yeah, I don't know. I, th- I think for Storm to be successful, they probably want to lean more on Aria Flame. Like, mm-hmm. I do think that there is a, a version of a deck with Aria that, like, plays Aria and then just, like, kills you the same turn. Right. And maybe that is just worse than playing Phoenix and having, you know, two different backup plans and stuff like that. But... Aria, I think, is quite good, and it makes me wonder why people would ever try and cast Gifts Ungiven to set up Pass in Flames and do all that nonsense. Yeah, it seems like a lot of hard work for maybe not all that much gain. But I'll point out that this is we're having this conversation in the context of our Jun versus Humans matchup, which shows how little respect we're kind of giving to humans right now. It does seem like a deck which has fallen off pretty dramatically. On the whole, you'd be happy to sit down across from humans every round, I'm assuming. Yeah, it is play draw dependent. It is dependent on whether or not they have Aether Vial on turn one. I know a lot of people, uh, maybe this number has gone down over the last year or so, but like a lot of people used to side out Aether Vial against Jund. And I actually think it is basically their their best card against Jund because what you are trying to do is just overload their mana. Like you, you give them enough time and they'll stabilize behind their Planeswalkers and their Bloodbraid Elves and Scavenging Ooze and stuff like that. Like you need to close the door quickly. It's not really about attrition. I do think that to some degree it is about uh, humans being able to like clear the way, like get rid of uh, Tarmogoyf or some other big blocker and maybe not respecting Tarmogoyf enough has caused the games to go longer and for them to be a bad attrition. But realistically, the games I'm losing from the Jun side are like either turn two Mantis Rider backed up by stuff or Aether Vial. And then on turn three, they have four things on the battlefield. Mm -hmm. Those are the games I'm losing and that's it. Okay. So a window for humans to slam through, but it's, it's a small one. And in general, Jun going to be happy to play against humans in this tournament. Let's go to, there's a couple more archetypes I want to talk about, and I want to loop a couple decks together here for this next one. These are kind of the hard aggro decks, the decks that are just looking to get you dead as soon as possible. Minimal disruption, just burn to the face. One is, of course, 
burn, always present in the modern metagame. Uh, it feels like maybe overrepresented sometimes at MCs. And then the next one I want to talk about, more of a new kid on the block, it's Mono Red Phoenix. And you mentioned that if you were looking to Phoenix in this tournament, maybe that's direct the direction you would go. Why do you have such a high opinion of Mono Red Phoenix right now? And then we'll talk about how you see Jund playing against both of these decks. Uh, Jund basically can't win either of these matchups. I think Burn is a little bit easier, but Mono Red Phoenix just ignores you. Like, there, there are games where you can kill their one drop, but then they just still have these like recursive engines with like Arclight Phoenix and Bedlam Reveler and even just like light up the stage. Like they just, they find a way to kill you or set up some big turn with a Swiss spear or whatever. Uh, and it, it just feels like the absolute nightmare and Monterey Phoenix and to a lesser extent burn are the reason why I have brutalities and a Thrag Tusk in my sideboard and, you know, Thrag Tusk can come in against like Eldrazi Tron, Is It Phoenix, Blue White Jun, Humans, whatever. But it's it's not great there, you know. And it, realistically, it's not even great against Burn. But uh, I didn't really want to play a Weather the Storm. I don't even think that a Weather the Storm necessarily beats Mono Red Phoenix because they can still just draw a bunch of cards and kill you if you're not really stopping them. So yeah, I'm I'm terrified of that deck. For a while, I think my win rate was like 85 to 90% on Magic Online with Jun, except I also had like 10 losses to burn decks, mostly Monterey Phoenix. So there, there was a huge amount of fear in your voice when you mentioned these two decks. The other deck you felt that way about was Tron. But in this case, you didn't scoop the matchup. You played some cards that are pointed towards these burn type decks. Is it just that the cards you have to play here are more flexible than the ones you'd have to play against Tron, Collective Brutality, Thragdust? You can find uses for those cards in other spots. So you're not pure scooping this matchup. You're kind of soft scooping it. Yeah, I mean, it's beatable, right? Like I still, I'm giving myself a chance. Like I don't think it is as impossible as Tron. I don't think it's Mm -hmm. 80-20. It's probably like, you know, 65-35 or whatever. And with these cards, if I draw one of them, I think I, you know, if I draw a Brutality, I, I like my chances to make my way into the mid game somewhat unscathed. And then hopefully at that point, like the more powerful cards can take over. I'm not in the th- under threat of getting Lava Spiked out or whatever. Uh, so I think Brutality is quite good. And rather than play a third Brutality, I just played a Thrag Tusk because the, the games actually do go kind of long against Modern Red Phoenix. So I do think I can get to Thrag Tusk. It's just whether or not like gaining five life actually matters uh, compared to just like the efficiency of brutality where you get to kill their Swiss spear and transform your dead resources into things that actually matter in the matchup. So like brutality is a big swing. Thrag Tusk isn't necessarily, but yeah, Thrag Tusk is a little bit better against other things. So I don't know. It's I'm, I'm maybe 40, 60 post board. Like I do have a shot. Okay. I'm assuming we're looking at three ley line, two collective brutality, one thrag tusk to swing the matchup. Me depends on the list. The... Okay. No, like there are there are some versions that just don't even play Arclight Phoenix. So depends on how many revelers they have, how many different like sideboard jukes they have. Like they can be trying to blood moon me, trying to burning rage me, Hazaret, stuff like that. But yeah, if if Leyline is good against them, I'm super happy about it. Because it's a zero mana card that interacts with them where a lot of my cards just don't interact with them. Sure. So this is the first time I've heard the words Blood Moon in the course of this podcast. A card that's on your radar at all? Don't care. At all? Card you're afraid of at all? Or just, nope, not interested? 
No, nah, I mean, we're we're playing eight fetch lands, could be playing more. Uh, Yusu Takahashi said that he wanted to play 10. I think that's a little too much when you want to play like Nurturing Peatland and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think if you fetch Forest Swamp, uh, they Blood Moon you, whatever, you don't really care. Like even if you have Forest in some matchups and you just get to cast like Lightning Bolts and Blood Braid Elves, like that's probably fine. But there, there are also just some games where you just don't care completely. If you do care, maybe you can nab it with a discard spell. I'm I'm not a big fan of Blood Moon against Jund. And from when I was playing Jund, I never really lost to it. Sometimes I sideboarded it in my Jund deck right. for things like Tron. Yep. And when I would play decks like Is It Phoenix and have Blood Moon in my sideboard, I wouldn't even want to bring it in against Jund, especially if the person was smart and would just like fetch around it, you know? So I'm not too I'm not too scared of it, and I don't expect it to show up in a bunch of spots. Yeah, that seems reasonable to me. Uh, anything else you want to say about these two matchups? Uh, obviously, both are somewhat problematic. You think you have a shot, though. Uh, looking to dodge these for the most part, I guess, is the the trend as we go into this tournament. Uh, I, I think I will get the biggest adrenaline rush sitting down across from Mono Red Phoenix because it, it's, it's a match that I know is going to be close, and I have respected it maybe not quite enough. Uh, but like still a decent amount. And I, I will be happy that my opponent is playing it because respect, you know, like I, th- I think Monterey Phoenix is a very good choice. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just, I think the games will be really good and there'll be nail biters, you know? So that'll, that'll probably be the most fun for me the entire tournament. Yeah. Fun magic for sure. One of the things I love about John, a lot of fun games. And that sounds like one, one matchup particularly inclined to produce those fun games. Okay. Last set of decks I want to talk about kind of looping a few together again. I'm talking Urza right now, and I think we're still figuring out exactly what Urza decks look like. There's some more prison builds. There's some more, I don't even want to call them aggressive builds, I guess more combo-focused builds. But without question, Urza, an extremely impactful card from Modern Horizons. Jund versus Urza, how do you see it going? And what do you think about Urza's chances in this tournament in general? Is this going to be a breakout showing maybe for the Urza decks? I think there might be like one team or one group of people or one individual human who ends up with a good list for the field. And I think that it's a possibility. It may or may not actually contain Urza in the main deck or whatever, but I do think that there are enough very good cards in the artifact shell that there should be something very strong. And you have the tools to fight all these different decks and, I'm mostly just too stupid to figure it out. Like, it, it's kind of weird where, like, if humans were a real deck, things like Thopter Sword would be a lot better. But Thopter mm-hmm. Sword against Blue-White doesn't really accomplish a whole lot. Thopter Sword against Eldrazi Tron, not really a big deal. Jund has a lot of ways to pick it apart, you know. So you kind of start to see where the weaknesses of the deck sort of break down. And it makes me wonder if there's like a different backup combo that you could have instead of Thopter Sword, or maybe you focus more on going infinite with it instead of just like grinding people out. I don't know. Like I, I I think the shell is powerful. I think all the cards are good. I just don't know how to build it. I didn't really focus too much effort on trying to figure it out. I think Goblin Engineer is probably a trap. And I think Teferi Time Raveler is really good, but that's about as far as I got. Interesting, interesting. Well, we'll have to see if anyone else has figured out the puzzle. So let's talk about John's matchup into this deck. Uh, not a huge amount of concession towards it. We see the one Ancient Grudge 
in the sideboard is maybe the hard targeting card, but everything else you're just going to find answers in other places, cobble things together as the Jun deck is capable of doing. What else do you see as part of your plan against the Urza decks? Vraska's good. And sure. uh, Plague Engineer is decent against the Thopter Sword combo. Yep. Uh, but mostly it's just like I have a lot of disruptive tools and a clock. And I think that that's kind of the nightmare for the Urza decks where you have uh, Liliana, a bunch of trophies, Abrupt Decay, uh, discard spells and scavenging use again. Uh, so, you know, things like Ensnaring Bridge aren't really a lock. Narset, Teferi's Puzzle Box isn't really a lock. Thopter Sword doesn't really accomplish a whole lot. Urza probably just dies. So... I think uh, the Urza decks are another subset of decks that are like, I really don't want to play against Jund. Nice. So another deck for you to prey on as we go into the tournament. Anything else you have to say about this archetype or even any other archetypes you want to talk about? I feel like this covers most of the really top end of modern. Do you see anything we left out? Any decks you're really concerned about having a big weekend showing up for the first time maybe and ruining your weekend? Titan Shift, like I said, is... Kind of tough or should be very tough, but I I don't know. it It's good on paper, but I think it's probably pretty bad. And I wonder how people will even go about that, where it's like, do you even consider this deck? Because it does look really good on paper. Do you figure out that it's pretty bad or do you just jam it anyway or whatever? Like I, I reasonably could not tell you how many copies of this deck are going to show up and how well they're going to do. Uh, but any deck playing Primeval Titan is bad times for Jund, for sure. Any big mana deck. Uh, the Vizier decks we didn't really talk about, but I think are probably reasonable matchups. Uh, I'm at 10 removal spells, which most people have like 9 to 12, 9 to 11, plus 4 Lilianas and some Ren and Sixes and stuff. So I have about as much removal as anyone else. I think the Vizier decks are pretty decent matchups. Uh, Neoform is comically easy or a nightmare, depending on which part of your deck you draw. So sure. I don't know that one. We're just flipping coins. Nothing matters. Hardened Scales is a, a deck that I think was very, very good for a short period of time and is now very bad. But I don't know. That's that's another one of those decks where it's like, oh, the, the top two decks are Blue White Control and Junt, huh? Like you just throw it right in the trash can. Right. And then, yeah, there are some Death Shadow decks, which I think Jun successfully goes over the top of. So it's it's like the, the top few decks, I really like my matchups against. The middle few decks, it's like, ooh, there are some scary ones in there. And then the next tier of decks, I'm like, yeah, I mostly like my spot. Yeah, I like your spot too. I think this was an inspired choice, a choice that required you to put aside a lot of your past sentiments and uh, hatred of this archetype to get back into the mix with it. And I do think it's a wise choice for this tournament. You kind of laid out how a lot of the top of the field is just leaning in your favor. And if those matchups go correctly, look, you're always going to play the modern matchup lottery to some extent. You can't dodge it entirely. And I think you've done as good a job as you can of where you can't dodge those matchup lottery games. You're getting like 45 percenters with the exceptions of like Tron. Uh, even a bad matchup like Mono Red Phoenix is still something you feel like you have a 40% chance against in sideboard games. That's a nice spot to be going into an MC. How do you feel about the limited portion? You confident in Modern Horizons draft? Oh, I was going to say, I if I if I pick up like an 8-2 and constructed, I wouldn't be shocked. But the problem is I'm going to go 2-4 in draft, so none of this really matters. <sighs> I've already given up. 
That's I gotta schedule some time <laughs> with you. And, I'm a uh, I'm a realist, my friends, <laughs> to talk through this preparation. I, I think you are in a fine position to do well in Modern Horizons. I know you have some experience with the format. You're just a good drafter. It'll it'll all work itself out. Sometimes we don't get as much time as we would like to focus on both ends, but you fall back on your skills and you find a way to succeed anyway. Oh, my friend, I had plenty of time. I had nothing but time. <laughs> so just blame you directly. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. No, I don't know. I I I didn't practice a whole lot. Like I, I played some constructed, and I certainly thought about it. Like there are you know a hundred new deck lists on my computer from the last three weeks or whatever. Uh, which is a little above average for what I normally put out. But yeah, I I thought a lot about this tournament and I've done a decent amount of preparation for limited and stuff, but I know that there are people who have done like 200 drafts and everything and who are just completely enamored with the format and know every single little nuance about it. And well, hopefully I don't play against those people, I guess. But you state this like it's outside the norm of your typical preparation. Like this is... This is generally how you play Magic. This is what has worked for you in the past. You think a lot. You theorize a lot. You don't play a ton of games. And I don't know why you're using that as a way to disqualify your chances in this particular instance. I can tell you've done your due diligence with terms of theorizing in this in this spot. Yeah, I, th- I think my modern prep itself is fine. There is some stuff that I am FOMOing about and... There are some points that you bring up about like, why aren't you playing Azorius or Hogak, you moron? And I don't have good replies for those, really. There are certainly errors that I've made already in in the preparation, right? And then there's the whole limited thing where I, I have so many screenshots that I took frustrated of me just like sitting in the queue for like 10 minutes, like trying to get a game. And yeah. that sort of thing just aggravates me to no end because like, what the hell world are we living in now where... You know, we have to test for the big tournaments on Magic Online, even though Arena exists and Arena is, for the most part, great. And, I mean, everyone knows that, which is why a lot of people got off Magic Online, you know. So just that sort of stuff is just really frustrating to me. Like, how many times can I sit around waiting for, like, 10, 15 minutes to play a match, right? No, that's not realistic in the current climate, where an on-demand society cues aren't supposed to take that long and people generally will not put up with that and uh, we'll go do something else. So you're right. That's not a good spot for testing to be in. It's certainly a hard spot for people who are relying on magic online, as opposed to people who can get together with a team and play a bunch of drafts or who have already played the format a bunch uh, during its heyday. So yeah, I get what you're saying. I, I could see some frustration creeping in there for sure. Yeah. And then a, a lot of it was just like, all right, for my mental health, I'm just going to screenshot this angrily not really, you know, I think I sent it to you maybe uh, or sent one of them to you. Maybe mm. not. But yeah, it's just like, all right, I'm, I'm for the most part, not even going to like complain about this. It just is what it is. And for my mental health, I'm just going to like take a step back and, you know, like, I'll, sure, I'll, I'll think about the decks some more, I guess. And granted, I've done like 20 drafts or whatever. So like for a normal pro tour, like I've, I've done a fine amount. I feel like I get the bare bones of the format and everything, but it's, I don't know, maybe you could make the case for like, oh, I should have front loaded more testing or whatever, because obviously the format was going to die down leading up to the PT or whatever. And it's like, sure, maybe you're right, but whatever. It's a weird, weird, weird format for a pro tour, you know, organized play as a whole. I think it's cool. So 
Yeah, but it just doesn't it doesn't align with anything that's going on. Like it doesn't I know with the focus man. of magic present. I know. Like everything points in one direction and here's this complete curveball throwing you back in the opposite direction. And it's like, yeah, I love this direction. Give me more of it. But every other tidbit of information, and yeah, they're tidbits for sure, is pointing in the complete opposite way and de-emphasizing these kind of experiences. So I don't know. It's hard to make heads of, heads or tails of exactly what's going on right now. Yeah. Mysteries, man. <laughs> Great mysteries. Uh, you know, it's not a mystery whether or not we're going to have a fine question from one of our patrons. In our Discord, as we do every week, someone hits us up with a question either relating to the broader topic or maybe something we just get excited about and want to talk about, even if it doesn't relate to the rest of the show. And then you hook them up with a beautiful arena deck list pin. I'm assuming those are probably like about to be in your hands, but since you're out of the country, you haven't touched them yet. Is that correct? Yeah, they've been in my house for a couple of weeks already. Right. So once you're back in town, those will start going out to our listeners and they'll be able to display them proudly on their play mats. So this week's question comes from Squirrel Master, who probably has the best name on the entire Discord. Props to you, Squirrel Master. This is just your alternate account, right? Uh, shh, they're not supposed to know that. Squirrel Master wants to know, tomorrow morning, you wake up to an email from Watsi that the hosts of the Arena Decklist podcast have been selected as showrunners for the upcoming Netflix MTG series. What story from Magic's history do you select as the hallmark entrance into MTG for many viewers, or do you elect to go with an original story? Also, are we getting squirrels in Eldraine? Jerry, you go first. That's like seven questions. Uh, Answer them all. Squirrels. There's there's got to be there's got to be squirrels, right? I like QC so. animal in Fantasyland. Like there's got to be at least one. It seems like it fits. Like Cinderella, like worked with squirrels, right, to make a dress. That's probably only the Disney version of Cinderella, and I don't know if Cinderella's in the set. But yeah, it seems like there should be squirrels in this world. Certainly, I support it. Anytime my token get more use, I'm here for it. I'm sure Squirrel Master supports it as well. Yeah, it's hard to say. Also, Mara has said some things. How can you possibly know? Right. How would you know Squirrel Master's into squirrels? Mara has said some things that suggest that squirrels are going to be around. Uh, I know he like answered a question on his blog a tog post that said all the squirrel haters are gone from Watsi and we saw them make their way back into Modern Horizons. I anticipate if it's not this set, very soon there will be more squirrels for Squirrel Master and myself. Yeah, so the the actual question, we are somehow somehow showrunners <laughs> for the Netflix MTG series. What story from Magic's history do you select as the hallmark entrance into MTG for many viewers? See, I think it's first interesting to figure out like do you want to tell origin stories for these characters or do you want to kind of do it like spider-man homecoming where it's like all right we just kind of skip the origin stuff assume that you know it and like throw you in the deep end and given that the netflix series is meant to appeal to a broader audience and presumably get people into magic i think that means that you need to do some sort of origin series and because of that, I think you probably have to either go with like just point blank original story or mixing uh, some original origin story elements, maybe just told through flashbacks or whatever, in with some like fresh take from uh, an already existing story, right? Like you need to be able to flesh out all these characters and show their interactions together and have it be like this character driven show, right? Because the Planeswalkers are the focal point of everything. So 
I don't know. That, that's kind of where I would start and then see what sort of ideas people had for me. I would get fired from this job so quickly because I would <laughs> not buy into the whole gatewatch thing. I think the gatewatch is so uninteresting. I'm just not into it whatsoever. I hate the tone that surrounds all the gatewatch stuff. And I, I tweeted about this. I was so excited to see the previews for Throne of Eldraine because it is that how it, how it's pronounced? Is it Eldraine? Yeah, it's it's the drain in Spanish is what someone okay. told me. Just how they intended it. So, so <laughs> the the tone around that Eldraine is, is not it. So much different from what we've seen over the past few years with this. I, I termed it either grim dark or grim dark light type approach to the Gatewatch, where the stakes are always world ending and there's always a theme of self-sacrifice running behind it and nobody wins and it's very painful and dramatic. And I know that's like what sells and what's cool, but I like the whimsical nature of magic. That's what really appeals to me. And if you just made the most fan service show possible and threw a new story behind it about, you know, somehow touching on the brothers war and referencing Shiv and dragons and black lotuses, I would be so into it. And that's exactly the type of show I would try and make. And I know that's not what's best for the brand. And I would be fired immediately because they're going to focus on the Gatewatch and they should probably because stories are better when they have forward facing protagonists and antagonists, very clear villains and heroes. Uh, and the Gatewatch are some of the clearest villains and heroes. Just nothing about them appeals to me. I don't find them all that interesting as characters. So I wish it was a deeper dive into Magic's past. And like the default answer in that scenario everyone gives is the Brothers War. But I think the Brothers War is also super dark and has like this really yeah. high stakes tone. And I would just want to get away from that. I wanna I wanna emphasize fun and like I don't know, not not these high stakes, ultra dramatic high fantasy because you're always fighting from the back foot in that sense. Like the story of the gate watch is never going to be as good as whatever game of Thrones or the first law trilogy, whatever right. kind of high fantasy you see as the hallmark of that genre, the gate watch will never touch that. It'll always be a worse version of that. And I don't know that you should lean into that. You should get away from that get back to the, I, I'm not even sure how to phrase it. Just the feel that I felt when I first looked at those original magic cards, this overwhelming, nostalgic, deep-rooted fantasy stuff that appeals to every single person who's ever been into that genre at all. That's what I would focus on, these iconic themes. I, I would basically make Iconic Masters the television series. And you know how well Iconic Masters did, Jerry. It, it, it didn't quite fly. So I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer this to please the people I would be working for and myself, which is why ultimately I'm getting the ax from this job. Yeah, I, I don't think trying to go the nostalgia sort of route is great because I, I do think the, the purpose of the show is to get new people. And yep. then you just find like the most cookie cutter way to do that while actually making the show good. So it's like you can do Avengers style uh, where it's like, the, the stakes are like real, but they're kind of small. And then they just like get bigger and bigger and bigger uh, from like season one to two to three to four, whatever. And then in the meantime, they are just character dramas with humor and just good writing, good dialogue, stuff like that. And I, I think that that is interesting. 
you know, and I, th- I think that could be a good way to actually sell the gate watch, even though I agree with you that it is just kind of a, a premise that is set to fail from the outset. So yeah, we'll but you can be know. a step, you can be a step below the hallmarks of the genre and still make an effective worthwhile show. I don't want to sound like I'm down on the project. I'm very excited to have a right. magic show to watch. That yeah. sounds really cool. It's just, it's hard to make it a home run, like one of the greatest things ever made. And maybe it's just silly to set out to do the greatest thing ever made every single time you do something. But that's kind of my nature. If I can't be the best at something, I don't really want to participate in it. So I'm I'm not getting hired as the showrunner. And Jerry, I'm pretty sure Watsy's not calling you for any work anytime soon. So I don't think we really have to worry about this question. Oh, you're, you're damn right they're not. They're not. <laughs> they're not. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they got us confused with the Bash Bros podcast and we got that email by mistake. Yeah, they, they mis, uh, misaddressed it. And now we've walked into the meeting and they're like, oh no, these guys are here. Well, it's it's too late. It would be too awkward to admit that we made a mistake. So, <laughs> Lean into it. We're the showrunners now. Yep. And uh, I believe that is game. Good luck.